Hello, everyone. Welcome to the World of NP podcast, an informative platform for healthcare consumers and providers, where your voices matter. My name is Dr. Christine Taharan. Today, we have a special guest. Her name is Dr. Enza Nguyen. In this episode. Dr. Nguyen will talk about her achievements, nursing experience, and her contributions to advanced nursing practice. We will share how Dr. Nguyen has impacted patient care through research and the dissemination of evidence-based practice in form of international presentations, research, and publications. Welcome, Dr. Nguyen. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Heron. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Dr. Nguyen, could you please share with us your nursing and educational background? Sure. I actually started as an associate's degree nurse 24 years ago. I graduated with my associate's degree in nursing. And like most of us that started our career that way, I sought to take the NCLEX exam and get my RN license. Shortly after that, I was able to get my first job in a acute care hospital setting. After about a year or so of working and, and feeling comfortable as a nurse, then I continued on and completed my bachelor's degree in nursing, working on that part-time while I worked full-time. And Dr. Nguyen, why did you pick nursing as a career? Science and medicine in general always interests me since I was a small child. My dad suffered from poorly controlled diabetes and heart disease. I remember as a small girl being and feeling distressed when he needed to go in to have a cath or procedure or see his cardiologist. I always told my dad that someday I was going to cure his heart. I did not go into cardiology, which is the funny part of the story, but I always knew and gravitated towards life sciences and medicine. In high school, when I made the decision to go into nursing, it just seemed very natural and common sense to me. Why did you choose to become a nurse practitioner? While I was attending a lecture during one of my classes in my associate's degree program, I remember very clearly one of our professors started elaborating and explaining to us what the nurse practitioner role was, how it came about. He talked about Dr. Loretta Ford and and how she spearheaded the nurse practitioner practice. I just remember sitting there in class going, that's exactly the way I want to go with my career. Since that day, I just learned and, and looked into what the role was, what the options were, all the other subspecialties. As I continued with my education and my career, I, I always had that sort of as my North Star. I knew that's where I wanted to go and how I wanted to eventually practice. Dr. Nguyen, please share with us your experience as a registered nurse and as a nurse practitioner. My entire career in nursing, both as an RN and a nurse practitioner, have been in in oncology. That first job I got after I got licensed was in an oncology floor in a large academic center in Southern California. The very first year or two were of an extremely rapid learning curve because not only was I learning how to take care of patients and be a nurse, but I was getting a crash course every night that I show up to work on on oncology and cancer, which we get very little of in our nursing programs. So I worked in that floor for four years. 
after about the first year, I was able to then go through the chemotherapy course and get certified as a chemotherapy nurse. Then about six months after that, I was very curious about the two or three rooms that we had in the one corner of the floor that were specialized for taking care of patients with bone marrow transplants and stem cell transplant. So I was always back there with those nurses who were the most experienced ones, asking them what were they doing? Why were the patients receiving such high doses of chemotherapy? Reading about how that affected the patients, looking at how they managed those patients. Eventually, I also got certified and trained as a bone marrow transplant nurse. How did you get into oncology specialty? I like to say that oncology came looking for me. I didn't go looking for it. I always remember in my nursing school, I always thought and talked about becoming an OR nurse. I saw myself in the OR. I thought it would be a very exciting place to be in the middle of surgeries, handing out instrument, helping out. That's what I wanted to do. When I went for that first interview, it so happened that it was the manager of the oncology floor that was interviewing. And she had, I think, two, maybe three positions that were opened. Like many of us, I graduated out of nursing school really needing a job. You, you needed to start working. So I interviewed with her. It went very well. And after a few calls and follow-ups, she offered me the, the position as a nurse in, in the night shift in this oncology floor. So I started working. I thought, well, I guess I'll start in oncology and maybe I'll make my way down to the uh, operating room, but that never happened. I, I guess I found my calling. I just completely fell in love with oncology and the cancer patients and how complex it was and how it was literally evolving every day as we practiced the various treatments, the new research. And where I was working, there was a lot of trials being done. It was just an exciting place, and, and I was just a sponge ready to suck it all in. What are your current roles and responsibilities as a registered nurse practitioner? So currently, I am not practicing. For the last year or so, I've actually taken a, a, a break from clinical practice, and I'm actually working in the pharmaceutical industry. I have a slightly different role now. However, I'm using a lot of my experience as a nurse, a nurse practitioner in oncology, and the current role I have where I am partnering and educating several of my accounts in hospitals on testing various tumors to identify a biomarker or the genes that are driving these tumors so we can do more targeted therapies. So this is called precision medicine. That's what I'm currently doing. That sounds exciting. It is. I, it has opened up a whole new way of sharing and utilizing my skills and knowledge in a slightly different way to advance cancer. Are you doing any research in your role? Not currently, no. But one of my responsibilities is to engage some of my cancer centers and accounts in process improvement projects in order to gather data as to how their cancer care is driven by testing and how it could be improved. I am therefore using some of the skills that I learned during my doctoral work in this role. At one point, you lived in the UK. I did, indeed. I lived in London for six years almost. Could you share with us your experience working in the UK? Yes, the first three years I was there, I was working as a utilization review nurse or case manager for an insurance company. 
where I was helping to review all the requests for treatments and approving or denying them based on the guidelines and evidence base. After that, I then went on and got my license as the registered nurse in the UK and was back in the bedside practicing at the very prestigious Harley Street Clinic in their oncology floor. Again, giving chemo, taking care of patients, became a charge nurse very quickly. So I was there for just over a year and then it was time to come back to the U.S. Did you have to take new classes before you were able to sit on the exam? Yes, going to the UK, and at that time, it was before this Brexit, so obviously they were very much part of the European Union. Believe it or not, the first thing I had to do when I applied to become a nurse was to sit through, I think, one or two English exams and prove that I could speak and write and understand English, even though my whole entire nursing career and education at that time was done in the US, which is an English-speaking country. But because you were coming from outside the EU, you had to sit through an English exam and then submit all your paperwork and documentation and credentialing to then obtain your nursing license. Were you able to practice as an advanced practice nurse in the UK? No, I was not. This was in the mid-2000s. The practice of the advanced practice provider in the UK was really just in its infancy. Knowing how limited it was at that time, I was not interested in going through that process. So I was just happy that I was able to, again, practice nursing, even if it was at the bedside. It was a great experience for me. I got to practice and work with nurses from all over the world. I had colleagues working with me from Australia, New Zealand, Portugal, Norway, Germany. So it was very exciting to sit and compare and talk about how nursing was in all these countries. How is nurse practitioner's roles in the UK different from the United States? I know they have, since I've left, they've developed and grown more. I do know for a fact, for example, their prescribing practice is very limited. For the most part in the U.S., and it does vary from state to state, but for the most part in the U.S., you're able to prescribe Schedule 2 to Schedule 5, any drug or medication that that your patient needs. In the UK, is very limited to your practice. So if you're working in cardiology, for example, you only get a list of so many cardiology and blood pressure-related drugs that you're able to prescribe. You're not really able to do much outside of that list. Or if you're in pain management, you're only to, able to prescribe those drugs that they give you a list of that are related to, to your specialty. In that regard, is very limited. So they did not have full practice authority? No. And being that it is in pretty much all over the world outside the U.S., a one-payer system, a, a national health system, I am not sure either how that works out as far as billing or proving your worth within the system. I'm sure there's people that has to be looking at how advanced practice providers in the UK and other countries are really improving patient outcomes and in value to the system, but I'm not aware of any of that currently. Dr. Nguyen, what drove you to pursue a doctoral degree? Why seek a doctor of nursing practice degree and not a PhD degree in nursing? That's a good question. I think the main reason was actually a two-prong, this is a two-prong answer. One, I knew how involved and lengthy a PhD program would be. 
to the main reason, actually, I was very much focused on the practice of the nurse practitioner. I wanted something more focused on the practice and outcomes and not so much about generating the information or data, which is where a PhD really is of value. I knew then that the doctoral degree would grant me the tools, not only to generate data and work side by side with a PhD if I wanted to, but also more importantly, the tools to gather data, read and study the data, any evidence-based publication, and then try to best apply to patient care and see where it would fit the best and make the best outcomes. That's what I was more interested in. A significant part of your DNP program was completing a DNP project. Please tell us about your DNP project, your topic, and what we can learn from it. My project and my topic very much related to my practice at the time. At the time, I was managing a thoracic oncology program. And immunotherapy was uh, becoming very new and an integral part of oncology care at that time. The problem we were having in the cancer center and in, in the oncology department was that we knew very well how to manage the side effects of these new treatments. We understood how to assess the patient and, and how to litigate and, and minimize the adverse events. The problem became when the patient was admitted across the street at our hospital, the patient came through the emergency department and was seen by an emergency room physician and nurses. They were not familiar with what immunotherapy is and how to assess and manage the side effects. So these patients then would then get admitted to the ICU oftentimes. Again, they would encounter a very well-prepared and educated and capable team of doctors and nurses, but who were, again, not familiar with what immunotherapy was. My physician colleagues in medical oncology had the problem that the patient would be admitted and they would not get called or notified for a few days. There was resistance in allowing them to really manage the side effects based on the data. I knew that there was a very big gap in care there and that they needed education and support. So that's what I did my doctoral work around was doing a baseline assessment of what they understood immunotherapy to be in the emergency department and ICU. I developed an intervention to educate the medical staff and the nursing staff in those departments. Then I measured the uptake of the information afterwards. How did you deliver the education? So that took a little bit of creative thinking. As we know, the emergency department is a very fast-paced environment. I knew I wasn't going to get physicians and nurses to sit in an auditorium for a half hour or an hour and listen to a lecture. So we developed what is called micro-teaching. We developed a booklet in uh, PowerPoint slides that were literally only 10, it took 10, 15 minutes to deliver. We would gather at the emergency physicians monthly meetings and we would conduct the presentations there. If a physician wasn't able to go to the meeting, then I would go to the emergency department and do a one-on-one -on -one with him or her. Same with the emergency room nurses and the ICU staff. I tailored it to their practice and where their environment, it was fast paced. They have a lot of demands on their time. I knew that I needed to take the mountain to Muhammad. 
we had to tailor the education to be able to be delivered the way that the physicians and the staff needed it. How did you measure the knowledge base before and after the education? I had a five-question questionnaire that I developed asking questions, simple ones. Do you understand what immunotherapy is? Do you understand the difference between immunotherapy and chemotherapy? Name three side effects from immunotherapy. We did that questionnaire before the intervention and then the same questionnaire after And there was a tremendous delta. There was a big change in the uptake of the information and the answers. That's how we were able to measure the uptake of the information. Another way to do that was also going through the EMR and looking at the admissions of these patients prior to the intervention and after to see if there was a decrease in the admission of these patients into the ICU and the the floor. What is immunotherapy? Immunotherapy is very different from chemotherapy in as much as chemotherapy is a a chemical, a compound, oftentimes called a poison for a reason. When you infuse chemotherapy into a, a body, it goes all over the body and it affects almost every single cell and tissue in a patient. This is why some patients lose their hair. Others have a lot of nausea and vomiting. Some patients have changes in their nails because these are cells that very rapidly multiply in our bodies. So they're affected by these compounds. On the other hand, immunotherapy is a molecule that attaches to a protein that most of the cancer cells have. There is a protein or a ligand that the cancer cells develop that is able to hide them from the immune system. When these proteins pop up on the top of the surface of the tumor cell, the T cells and the B cells cannot recognize the tumor as something foreign. Now it's something that belongs in your body, so they don't attack and kill the tumor cells. Immunotherapy blocks that. And now the T cell and the B cell is able to say, huh, you are not supposed to be here. I'm supposed to kill you. So the immune system goes after the tumor. What happens though, is sometimes they get so excited about going after the tumor cells that they start attacking our own body. That's why you get cases of patients that develop a pneumonitis or a colitis or a hepatitis, and it's not a bacterial or a viral infection is the immune system attacking these organs. As we remember, itis means inflammation. These patients, when they get admitted, they do not need counterproductive to how we must, we usually treat patients. They do not need antibiotics. What they need are high, very high doses of steroids to calm down that immune system and bring down that inflammatory response. What can we learn from your DNP project? I think... For any nurse out there, whether you are a BSN nurse or a nurse practitioner, I I think the most important thing to learn is that in every day in our practices, we encounter problems and situations and gaps that we're trying to overcome and work with our colleagues on. And any of us can take any of these projects or, or problems and turn them into a project. If you're interested, then you can do a doctoral or even a PhD program based on these issues that we face every day. Also, Dr. Nguyen, you participated in a lot of research. Specifically, you have participated in 10 research and or publications. How did you get involved in participating in all these researches? 
I was very passionate at the time and the work I was doing around lung cancer managing the thoracic oncology program. And one day I, my team member, a colleague and I were asked to share in a meeting in San Francisco, some of the projects that we were involved in to address tumor testing for lung cancer patients. It so happens that this presentation was part of a larger project where various patient advocacy groups and other professionals from around the country were also speaking and sharing best practices. One of the speakers was the CEO at the time and chief medical officer for the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, ISLAC. I guess he was very interested in the work that we were doing at our hospital and in particular how nurses were getting involved in these projects in trying to advance patient care. He uh, approached my colleague and I and said, I'm really interested in bringing nurses more to the table at my organization and, and worldwide in the care of lung cancer patients. He invited us to join the nursing committee in the organization. We did. And with that committee, then we got involved in doing a lot of other projects internationally. Then we were able to go back to our facility and say, hey, let's look at this issue. Let's look at that problem. Through that, we were able to do several poster board presentations at a major international meeting. Your recent publication in the Journal of Emergency Nursing in November 2019 was on immune adverse events. Please tell us about the article and what nurses can learn from it. Yes, that article is actually based in most of my doctoral work. So I was able to get some of the information that I had gathered in some of the writings for my dissertation, my capstone, and then had a case study that I was able to share my doctoral chair is a emergency room nurse by background. She really encouraged me to share this and publish it so that other emergency room nurses could also understand the issue and the clinical problem and read some of the work that I was able to, to do during my doctoral work. So that's how that came about too. Could you share some of the cases that you discussed? In that publication, I think there's a particular case, uh, a case study of a gentleman with lung cancer that I was caring for at the time who developed really bad pneumonitis. And again, not a bacterial or viral in etiology, but this was inflammatory because of the immune system just ramping up so much and, and really going after healthy tissue. We illustrated the case and how it was managed and assessed in the emergency department and how high doses of steroids were used in that particular case. Also to add to that, based on that article and the work I did for my capstone, we also submitted a poster and mini oral presentation at the Emergency Nurses Association National Meeting in Austin, Texas in 2019. I was able to also present that at that meeting nationally. Another publication in the Journal of Oncology Issues in July 2018, you contributed in an article on testing and treating ALK plus non-small cell lung cancer. How did you get involved and what did you learn from that research? I, I don't want to sound naive, but I think the passion and the momentum that, that we had with all these projects and, and the drive to really increase testing and improve the patient care in our facility 
just open one door after another. So we partner with the ACCC, the Association of Community Cancer Centers, which is a national organization. Based again on some of these projects and work, they asked me to participate and contribute to the writing of that particular paper, which looked at testing and looking for alterations in patients with non-small cell lung cancer. What can nurses learn from this article? I think what they can learn from the article and all these projects is that once you find your passion or your drive in, in your nursing practice, whether it is in the NICU or in the ICU or operating room or in the cancer center, wherever it may be, once you find that passion, it's really looking to see who are the other champions, whether it's leadership, executive team, your physicians, other nurses that you could partner with and work on some of these projects and interests that you may have in your patient care and, and look into ways to how you can disseminate your findings, how you can reach out to other organizations and share that passion. And I think that just, it's a trickle down effect and it just keeps opening doors and more and more opportunities present to, to you as a provider to just showcase what you're doing with your passion and how you're driving evidence-based care within your specialty. Another interesting publication was on understanding and improving lung cancer treatment in Asian American and Pacific Islanders in the community setting. And that was also published in the oncology issue, February, 2016. Could you please share with us how you are able to be a, a part of this fantastic research experience? Yeah, this is actually a white paper that we wrote. And again, I was asked to be a contributor and collaborator. This was also through the ACCC, the Association of Community Cancer Centers. Again, based on some of these projects on driving better care for patients with lung cancer through testing of the tumor, the data has shown us that Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders tend to have a higher number of some of these mutations that drive some of these tumors. So it's very important to find these patients and test them and treat them accordingly because their tumors behave very differently than someone that does not have that particular biomarker or that driver. Clinical trials and the data have shown that if these patients receive the appropriate targeted treatment, they do much better and live longer. There are also seven other research or publications that you are part of. And for the nurse practitioner, nurses who are interested in be, being a part of research and publications and the dissemination of evidence-based practice, what recommendations do you give to them? I think, again, it's reiterating the fact that if you have that drive and that passion, get involved with your nursing association for your particular specialty and look into if you want to become a nurse practitioner or you want to do some doctoral work, organizations and through your school, finding a mentor that will help you publish and write someone that who's done it, who has experience doing it, because it can be quite a lengthy process depending on what it is you're writing, whether it's a, a case study or a properly researched publication or a poster board, seek someone within your practice or your facility that could be a good mentor that has that experience. Could you explain the process of getting your research done to the point of publication and how long does it take? 
it varies from publication to publication, but I think the most important thing is identifying what it is that you want to write about, what your problem or clinical issue is. The second most important would be going into that particular journal. If you want to publish within the Journal of Emergency Nursing, for example, or an oncology journal, it's logging into their website and gathering some information as to what template they have, what form of referencing they seek, some want APA, other ones want MLA. So everybody has a different way of referencing the table of reference, for example. Some may have a particular template or pattern that they want something written in. It's just gathering that information. Once you have that, then it's figuring out based on your problem, what, how you want to then gather the information in presenting it. Most editors are really good and very open to answering your questions via the phone or email. I would encourage anyone to reach out um, to an editor of a particular journal and gathering that information as to how they want the information and the paper to be written in what format. How long or how short is the process? It depends how good and fast of a writer you are, <laughs> however long it takes you to write a, a paper and gather your reference list. You submit that. It usually takes for a peer review process anywhere from two to six, eight months for them to review your article or your writing. And they get back to you with feedback, some revisions, most likely. And they'll give you a turnaround time. I would say from the beginning of writing to publication, it could be anywhere from 12 to 18 months. So patience is very important. Dr. Nguyen, you've done a lot of presentations, including presenting internationally. You have done three presentations with the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer on various oncology topics. Two of these you presented in Spain and in Canada. Please share with us your experience. Yes, part of these poster presentations were actually some of the pre-doctoral work that I did. The one in Toronto was the pre-doctoral work I did doing some of the baseline assessment in preparation for my doctoral work. One of the poster boards presentations in Barcelona last year in 2019 was actually my doctoral poster board where I presented the data that I was able to gather showing the change in knowledge and practice based on the intervention of educating the emergency and intensive care staff on the management of adverse events, in particular for lung cancer patients. How were you able to present internationally? Is there reimbursement for traveling? Some organizations do, others don't. So for example, I got very lucky. Again, I was asked to join and participate in the nursing committee of ISLAC. Two or three of the world congresses that I attended, the organization actually had fundings for some of us to attend. One of the world congresses, the one in Toronto in 2018, I applied for a grant from my doctoral work from the university, and I was able to get some money to help with some of the cost. Again, it's getting a little bit creative and seeing if the organization you work with or the school you're attending has funds for scholarship or grants. 
also sometimes the some of these congresses will have some funding for nurses to present. I find that more and more international organizations, whether it's in lung cancer or oncology or cardiology, are really trying to bring nurses more to the table. Obviously, this is all pre-COVID. We don't know what the world and congresses are going to be like in the years to come, but they were more and more open to sponsoring nurses as well. Also, you presented in Austin, Texas in August 2019 on identification of immunotherapy patients in emergency department. Please share with us about the presentation and what we can learn from it. Yes, this was as a result of me submitting a publication to the Journal of Emergency Nursing. The meeting in Austin last year was actually the National Emergency Nurses Association meeting. Again, my doctoral chair, really being a very active member of that organization, encouraged me and and supported me in submitting a, a poster and a mini oral for that meeting. It was accepted. I think it tied up very nicely with the fact that I was publishing in their journal too. Your passion for research and dissemination is clearly evident. Where did your passion for research and dissemination of evidence-based practice start? I, I think it started from that very first job, that very first role I had in that very busy oncology floor, where I really was absorbing and trying to learn everything that I could about giving chemotherapy and taking care of complex cancer patients then figuring it out, how can I best work with my colleagues? It was an academic center. There were medical students, residents, fellows, attendings. There was a whole army of people that I could go to asking questions, looking for answers, looking to learn. I I think they really encouraged that learning and that curiosity in me in the sense of sharing in, in a teamwork. I think that's where it came from. Dr. Nguyen, are there any other memorable research publications or presentations you'd like to share with us? I think a good example, and going back to the point I just made, again, when I was still a very young nurse, just learning and wanting to be in the midst of these complex bone marrow transplant patients. I'm originally from Panama, and I still have family there. One, one year, I went back to visit family, and I was sitting at the kitchen table with my mom, and I said, I wonder how bone marrow transplant patients or leukemic patients are cared for here in this country. She said, I used to know a very well-known hematologist here, so why don't we call him and ask him, and I'll introduce you. So she did, and then four months later, I was actually asked to go back to the country to deliver a presentation for nurses and medical students, my experience on taking care of bone marrow transplant patients because they were going to start doing that in that country. I think, again, this is part of where once you have a passion and you're interested in learning and ask those questions, those doors just really open for you. I never thought I would go back to the country I was born in to help educate other colleagues there on bone marrow transplant patients. And now they have a thriving bone marrow transplant program. Dr. Nguyen, are there any specific research or publications you're currently working on? I am in the middle of doing some final revisions for three chapters that I, two I revised and one I wrote for the Oncology Nursing Society, their pocket guides for advanced practice nurses in oncology. That will be coming out in Q1, Q2 of 2021. I'm working with the editor right now on the final revisions to those chapters. 
Please tell us about the award you received related to your DNP project. I was awarded after my defense of my capstone and project an excellence in nursing award. I did not even know, it was a very nice surprise. I did not even know that I had been nominated, but it was in recognition of the work I've done in trying to advance advanced practice nursing in oncology and improving patient care through some of the work and projects that I've done with ISLAC and other organizations. Dr. Nguyen, what are your future plans and where do you see yourself in five years and in 10 years? At, at the moment, I'm really enjoying this new chapter in my professional career, exploring the roles and how I can contribute to patient care on, on this side of the fence, so to speak, within the pharma industry. I really see myself here for another five years or so. The long term, though, I do want to explore how I can eventually teach. I think teaching is a passion I, I have, obviously trying to write and disseminate and encourage uh, others to do. So I would love to see how in the not so distant future, I can also try to get into teaching at a graduate level. What are your proudest personal and professional achievements? I think personal, my family, my children are definitely at the very top of the list. And I think a close second is how rewarding it has been for me to bring in together two of my biggest passions, work and, and patient care and travel, nursing and these projects. This work has granted me the opportunity to, to do both, to travel, to get to know people from different countries and go to all these different countries, share some of my experience and knowledge and learn from them too. I've been very blessed to do that. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us, Dr. Nguyen? I would just like to encourage anyone out there, whether you are a ADN nurse, a BSN nurse, or nurse practitioner, to just keep going, find that passion, find what just really makes you get up in the morning, whatever your specialty or your area of care is. I think COVID and this pandemic has shown the world how important nurses are and the value that we bring to the team. So just pursue your passion. I would encourage anyone out there to also pursue further education so they become a, a louder voice in improving our careers and the lives of our patients. Thank you, Dr. Nguyen, for sharing with us your achievements, experience, and contribution to the field of nursing. Congratulations on the award, research, and publications that you have done. We thank you so much for sharing your stories with us on this episode. We wish you the best. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Before we end our podcast, we would like to say that this podcast does not constitute medical or legal advice. Therefore, it should not be taken as such, but instead it serves as, as an educational purpose only. This podcast forum does not constitute professional medical or legal advice or judgment. Also, it should not be received or interpreted as an endorsement of any products or services or as a substitute for adequate training, research, compliance with established protocols, federal, state, or local rules. The viewpoints, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely to the author, not to the author's employer, organization, committee, or any other group or individual. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope that you'll find the information that we discussed valuable. 
At the World of NP, our mission is to empower healthcare consumers and providers by giving them voices so they can advocate for themselves and for the patient. Please subscribe, follow, and listen to our weekly podcast. Also, make sure to share this special episode with your family and friends. Thank you for your time and support. For more information, please visit www.worldofnp.com. We will see you in the next episode.